Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Changing Reels, the podcast dedicated to diversity in front of and behind the camera, looking for movies slightly off the beaten trail or maybe some mainstream flicks that haven't quite gotten the analysis or appreciation that they perhaps earned. So for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And this episode, we're going to be breaking format a wee bit. With Christmas coming up, I thought it would be kind of a fun idea for Courtney and myself to select Christmas-ish movies. You know, they don't have to be overtly Christmassy, but something a little more in tune to the holiday. Because when I was thinking back to our Listener's Choice episode about Medicine for Melancholy or a few weeks back, we had said that that was kind of a palate cleanser or a, a way to maybe blow off some steam with our format. And looking back on it, I realized that we spent the time talking about uh, rough upbringings and sexuality questions, violent Nazis and liberals who are a bit clueless. And then while Medicine for Melancholy was extremely lovely, much uncertainty and pain there. So I was thinking maybe for a Christmas episode, we would kind of sidestep away from that because as much as that was a blow off when I thought about it, I was like, oh boy, that that wasn't much fun. <laughs> are you saying that social issues and gentrification are not uplifting topics? I think they can be in the right format. In the moment, I think that Medicine for Melancholy and our quick discussions on Moonlight and Green Room, they were great. But... In the long run, violence, pain, and Nazis. So if anyone out there would like to suggest a uplifting or energetic movie about gentrification and Nazis that isn't maybe the producers, I have no idea what an uplifting movie about gentrification would look like. I'm sure there's probably one out there that we just haven't even thought of. Maybe a <laughs> musical? Or some kind? I don't know. This is kind of our longabout way of saying, if you have something you'd like us to talk about, a movie, a short film, to that effect, or to any other effect, because I'm certainly not going to expect our inbox to be flooded with positive gentrification discussion movies, make sure that you shoot us an email. I'm going to be including links to that in the description for this episode. There's also subscribing to us via iTunes or Courtney. What was that snazzy other thing you set up? We're on Stitcher and you can also contact us on Twitter at changing reels AC. There you go. Courtney picking up the slack where I am drifting off a bit. And I think it's just fair also to you listeners I am having some health issues at the moment, and the medication that I am on is designed basically for anxiety. So I am fighting my way through a extremely sleepy haze today with a quadruple shot frappuccino. So if I meander a bit more than normal, apologies in advance, but I hope this will all end up being for the better. Courtney, I don't suppose you have any drugs of choice for you today. No, I'm sipping nature's alcohol known as water. See, that's a lot healthier than me. Even though I love coffee, the dehydration aspects of it, not so much. So we're going to get started today with our, actually, the two films we're going to talk about. And we're going to kind of keep things looser than normal because, again, this we want to be a bit more of a good feeling. Typically, we will focus on two short films prior to, but we're going to forego that this week just so we can have a little fun and actually positively discuss everything in a happy, happy way. So that would be some of the meandering I was talking about. Courtney, why don't you talk about the movie that you picked here for today and why you chose this as kind of your Christmassy feature? The film that I chose was 2006 um, Last Holiday, directed by Wayne Wang and starring Queen Latifah. Not a popular holiday film. And I liked how you started off by saying Christmas-ish movies, because I think that in itself, defining what a Christmas movie is, is open for discussion. I know you're not a, a fan of Die Hard in this category in terms of Christmas grouping, but I would argue that if you don't like Die Hard or you can't accept Die Hard as a Christmas movie, then you can't accept Last Holiday as a Christmas movie. So I'm going to use Last Holiday to convince you that Die Hard is a Christmas movie in a roundabout way. But the main reason I actually chose Last Holiday is as fun and as late as it is, 
I noticed when I was going through the list of Christmas films and looking at the various rankings of all-time greatest Christmas films, I realized that for the Christmas and holiday genre, it's predominantly white, if you think about it. And I'm not just talking about the snow. Like, when you look at the character, the lead characters, and who the stories <laughs> center around. So I was thinking, well, what are some good, diverse holiday films? And I didn't want to choose films like This Christmas or... The Best Man's Holiday, which is predominantly an African-American cast, or I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's one where it's like an all-Latin American cast. I wanted one that was truly diverse, and I would argue that Last Holiday is probably the most diverse holiday film out there. Now, you have a director who was originally born in Hong Kong. You have an African-American woman as the lead. You've got an Indian doctor in it. Like It's just a really diverse cast, and it's fun. There's a few things that I would leave out of the movie personally, but overall, I think it's a fun movie that it's like fluffy you can put it on while you're wrapping gifts and you just are left in a happy place see for your arguments here i think if we stick to christmas ish sure i will certainly accept die hard is a christmas ish movie much like i will accept last holiday is a christmas ish movie background debates aside i completely agree with you i was working at the movie theater when last holiday came out and this was when I was in the upswing of my, oh my God, I love Queen Latifah phase. I had become a fan of hers at a really young age when I was watching Living Single and listening to her music. And then when she had the When You're Good to Mama musical number in Chicago, I lost it a little bit, as I imagine a many a young man and or woman did across the country seeing her do that and one of the things i just love about latifa is the confidence and sexiness she brings to any role excepting perhaps taxi but that may be a conversation for another time and last holiday in addition to its diversity it's more or less just a celebration of the queen. You could probably knock it for some of its sitcominess, but that's also where it gets a lot of its charm. Queen Latifah is just so game for stuff like this, and she is so wonderfully sincere that even some of the more absurd moments of Last Holiday work well. One of the moments I don't think entirely works is when she gets into an impromptu ski competition with the bad guy. Yeah, that's the moment I was referring to that I would leave out personally. I, <laughs> I think a lot of people who don't like this film don't like it primarily because of moments like that. See, and then a bit later, there's something that I, I think does work in its own cheesy way, even though it's kind of playing off sitcommy stuff. But that moment when she goes base jumping, it's so obvious a switch between when she's getting prepped to jump uh, queen latifah plays a uh, miss georgia bird here when georgia is about to jump and it's clearly the queen at that point and we're on this establishing shot on the top of the base with which they are going to jump and then after she jumps it switches to this really obvious green screen thing with queen taking up kind of the lower half of the screen and there's just something really charming about that because that's one of the moments where it revels in its fakeness without relying too much on kind of slapsticky elements because I, I think there's good slapstick out there i mean obviously i'm a huge fan of buster keaton here when it revels in the fantasy and that's kind of what last holiday is overall it's a movie that just asks us to revel in this fantasy with georgia the base jumping moment is one of those moments that's so fake that it circles back around to being kind of heartwarming for me i would leave that one in i completely agree with you on the skiing part but moments like that i really dig them yeah and for me the base jumping i didn't have that much of a problem with because even although it's how you talked about the film and how the framing of her being partly in the screen and the green screen i was willing to accept that when she's bumbling around on the snowboard and manages to do all this impossible stuff and land upright that's where i kind of rolled my eyes one thing i will say for Christmas-ish type of films. I do like when they have a certain element of magical or fantastical aspects to it. So that's why I can kind of handle the base jumping. And I think what really draws me to this film is my wife is a big Christmas fan. Like I'm talking huge. November 12th, day after Memorial Day, our Christmas tree was up. 
You know, she had most of the presents purchased by November 30th. And for her, it's a routine to watch any version of A Christmas Carol. That's like her staples. And also those cheesy Lifetime movies that are all kind of cookie cutter and the same. And the one thing I liked about Last Holiday, because that's one of those films that kind of slips into her rotation that I can sit with her and enjoy, is that for me, the film works best when Latifah, or I should say her character Georgia, is just telling it like it is. I've got nothing to lose, so I'm going to give you the honest truth of your various situations. But she says it in such a frank but amusing way that it hits the nail on what's going on with all the people that she's interacting in their lives. I don't feel like she's being preachy or sanctimonious in any way she's just kind of telling it like it is and she doesn't really care if you agree with her or not but of course what she's saying is the truth and i I think those moments work best so i wish that they'd eliminated the whole snowboarding scene and just had more moments of her dropping truth bombs on people and i think that's where director wayne wang's approach comes into play we're going to talk about this a little later but i had selected a danny boyle movie to talk about and i'd actually argue that wayne wang of the two between him and danny boyle has had the more interesting or varied career. He's gone from erotic thrillers like Slam Dance to multi-generation dramas like The Joy Luck Club to movies like Last Holiday or Made in Manhattan, which are these effective little fantasy pieces and, and he also had um sorry to interrupt but he also had two films i love from the 90s two indie gems smoke and blue in the face yeah so he's been all over the place as far as his career is concerned and that's also where i like to challenge the idea of what an overlooked or underappreciated or diverse movie is because i don't think critically speaking there's a lot of respect for the mid-level get a bankable star you throw them in there you give them something happy to do for a while and you know it's a lot of cookie cutter stuff like you said but when it's done really well there's a lot of heart to it i would put last holiday in a boat with something like hope springs that's got tommy lee jones and meryl streep as an older couple who needs relationship counseling and just think of that as a plot description think of also this one here where a common working lady thinks that she has only so long to live and gets to go on this wonderful dreamlike adventure the those markets aren't really taken very seriously, and in their way, Last Holiday and something like Hope Springs and those kind of mid-level budget movies, which Wayne Wang is really good at. Like, I'm not going to sit here and defend something like Because of Winn-Dixie, but Made in Manhattan, this, and his other more mainstream-esque movies, they work really well. So he's one of the critical components to why Last Holiday is a good time. It's true. And if, if you think about it, one of the reasons I said earlier about it being Christmas-ish is because Christmas doesn't really play a huge part in, in this film. Like at the very beginning, you see a reef on the church. You see a sign saying, put Christ back into Christmas. And I think there's like a snowman decoration in our neighbor's house. And I think the store that she works <laughs> at too has, so like Christmas is almost like an afterthought in this film. But the way how he pulls everything together, you walk out of this film feeling like you've had a joyful Christmas experience. And I was telling my wife the, when we watched this again recently that to me, this film feels much like a Christmas carol, but from Ghost of Christmas Presence point of view. And I, I look at Latif uh, as Georgia as that ghost who's like, I've got nothing to lose. So I'm here's how it's going to play out. And in theory, the Scrooge, I guess, would be Timothy Hutton's Matthew Cragen. That's how I kind of look at it, because this film, you could easily watch it and not even associate it with Christmas whatsoever. But yet, you can also watch it, and you've had a great holiday experience. Part of the great holiday experience there, and I think this is going to kind of go back to what I was saying about a bit of snobbery, as well as the diversity in play here, and also what you were saying about how Georgia's great at telling it like it is, is that Last Holiday is a surprisingly good uplift movie for working class people. What Last Holiday also understands that unfortunately many American politicians do not is that working class people does not mean predominantly white factory workers. One of the things I love in Last Holiday is how Georgia, when she's going around the spa or when she is getting this 
great meal or even when she is quitting her job in one of my favorite scenes she's sticking up and giving voice to the workers around her who are white black indian and in probably one of the most Depardieuist roles ever, Gerard Depardieu getting respect for his cuisine work as a chef at the resort she ends up at. But a lot of like the central twists, if you could even really call them that, in Last Holiday involve her going around and saying, hey, would you stop being such a jerk to these workers they are working hard to give you pleasure either via the seaweed wraps which georgia very amusingly rejects in one scene or Depardieu as the chef i thought it was a really great moment of code switching acting when Depardieu gets an order basically saying you know hold this make sure it's non-dairy make sure that it's low calorie and everything like that and he's talking in English when he is being told that he has to make his meal not like his meal at all, and he's disgusted with that. But when he finds out that there is a patron out there who just wants his food, and she wants all of his food, he does that part in French, and I like the fact that Wayne Wang doesn't put subtitles up on the screen, so that that way we have to go by the visual and audio cues without necessarily understanding what's being said. But the fact that he switches, Depardieu does, from English to French, and then there's the curiosity mixed with delight in his face when he finds out someone just wants his food, otherwise his labor. It's wonderful. It goes back to what I was saying about there's a certain smugness when looking down on these movies because they're, you know, middle brow, mid-budget, whatever. But it's nice to see movies that stick up for working people without maybe necessarily going for a full-on preachiness or a full-on sociological breakdown. It's just as simple as Georgia walking up at people and saying, stop that. We need to just stop that. To play off of that with Depardieu, it also really shows the class structure and how the wealthy at this resort that Georgia finds herself with, all they're really concerned about is status and getting those big deals. Like I love the scene where Cragen and Senator Dillings, played by Giancarlo Esposito, are talking, trying to figure out who this wealthy black woman is and senator dillens basically says i don't know every black person just because i'm my shade is darker than (laughs) you right and throughout this entire film there's just subtle jabs of saying you don't really understand the people because all you see is money and business and how to get ahead but even in doing so like craigan's trying to establish all these new business dealings with the governor and at the end of the day, his stores were the common work are floundering, and he has no idea why. To fit in with the Christmas-ish tone is that rejection of the distractions, and like money is the ultimate distraction in this film for everybody. And George is the one who is basically saying, look, money means nothing at the end of the day. It's the, the people that you work with, the people that you interact with. That's how you can buy that Georgia and Sean have that kind of humble flirtation because they're both in many ways just people trying to make a living. And can I just say, L.O. Cool J playing the bashful object of affection, similar to his humble chef in Deep Blue Sea. That's worth the price of the ticket alone, people. So adorable. So adorable. You know, when they have that fantasy scene where he's opening up his shirt. (laughs) And, like, that's, to me, that's more of the L.O. Cool that we're used to seeing. La Macho, look at my chest. And here he's playing the bashful, oh, George is looking at me kind of guy. It's like, well, this this movie's just charming. And that charm, I, I think it even comes through in the soundtrack. It's not filled with a lot of the traditional choices and i'll talk about this when we get to the the boil pick too but when nina simone comes on and feeling good i was just thinking about how many times people when they are thinking of uh, black musicians they will default back to james brown's i feel good the choice of focusing on nina simone and i know that feeling good was one of her true hits but there's an edge to it that helps some of the saccharine aspects of Last Holiday go down smooth. So I liked that even in the soundtrack, there weren't exactly a lot of obvious choices. Even if soundtrack versus score, the score is sometimes that really typical 
uplifting string or mischievous string sound that we we call sitcom-esque. But it's just something else really tiny that I noticed in part because of LL Cool J's little seduction scene that's helped us stand apart from other movies of its ilk. To add on to that in terms of standing apart and the way how this film uses religion, I find is interesting. And maybe this will tie in even more when we get to your pick, the Danny Boyle film. But Georgia throughout this entire film is having her dialogue with God as she's going through the hardships. And even when she's being diagnosed, you never get the sense that she's cursing God or what. God is just like her personal therapist throughout this whole film. But yet it doesn't feel preachy in any way. Like I know once you introduce religion into certain films, some people already get their shoulders up in arms, you know, and they're just getting tense and like, oh, this film's going to preach out to me. But I like that this film isn't afraid to establish that she's got this connection with God. And again, it doesn't matter whatever you believe. This is just her own personal connection. And it's one that comes across so effortlessly i think again it falls into the whole christmas ish almost getting back to the essence of christmas but or the beginnings of christmas but without doing it in a way that you're gonna roll your eyes at yeah and i appreciate the way that the religion is integrated in this a lot more than another queen latifah vehicle joyful noise which i kind of want to take another look at just because i'm starting to wonder if it was a satire of some kind. But... Was that the uh, the choir? Yeah, that was the choir one. Okay, with I that Barton. Yeah, I. It's an odd bird. There's a part when Latifah, who plays one of the dueling choir creative directors, is trying to tell her daughter off, and when she's demanding respect from her daughter, she says, "You better treat my snores like a Marvin Gaye love song." And I've listened to a few Marvin Gaye love songs, and a mother telling that to her daughter? Kind of weird. Since the whole movie revolves around this choir competition, it's kind of just window dressing for the church. Like, there's not any kind of serious interplay with the religion. And I think that is a good place for satire. I, I don't think Joyful Nose is exactly it, but it's still stuck in my brain because of it. Here, it's gently introduced, and I like the scenes with the choir and Latifah kind of getting lost in the music and the sounds. It also plays into the stuff with Giancarlo Esposito's Senator. And by the way, when I watched this initially, I wasn't as huge a fan of Mr. Esposito. Now that I've watched Every Spike Lee movie among Breaking Bad and other things, my notes in all caps here were Giancarlo Esposito out of nowhere. Just wanted to put that in real quick because I was really happy to see him. But it also goes back to that kind of community aspect and how Georgia is speaking up for the community because the senator that Esposito plays, he is one of the church parishioners. And they look up to him for guidance and obviously support. And I like how Georgia's quiet dialogue both with god and with her church gives her an actual moral pillar that she doesn't preach from but she gives gentle advice to i think in a lesser movie you would have a dueling romance and it, it kind of seems to be setting that up here where the senator and sean for a little bit looks like they might be competing for george's affections but it doesn't do that at all and basically the end of whatever relationship, and in this case, more friendship between Georgia and the senator comes up with is her gently scolding the senator for being here on these business deals and not making time for his parishioners. And without that gentle integration of religion and, and really Georgia's specific faith, not just the religious structure, those moments wouldn't have worked. And it's kind of one of those left turns that I wish more movies would take so that we didn't have useless drama. We just had that effective little moment and then we could move on. That's one thing that really struck me about this. As formulaic as the structure may be, you do have moments like that that deviate from what we expect and i like that wang wang contains everything really nice as you said he hints at a possible love triangle but that's something that we'd come to expect from these type of films anyway so he immediately scraps and says no these moments are about humans interacting and talking about what's right that great interplay when he's talking about oh well, how he's so busy in washington and washington can kind of sweep you up on things and she's saying doesn't matter where you are you've got to remember where you came from at the end of the day that's what makes you who you are it's those little moments that 
make Last Holiday an enjoyable Christmas-ish film. And on the note of defying expectations, I wish more rom-coms would take to their endings the approach Wang and Latifah take to the, I guess, the climax less so than the ending of Last Holiday. Because in a lot of rom-coms where someone, I guess, pretends to be who they're not, or people assume that they're someone else, we have this blow-up, and then there are these tensions where we're like, well, how dare you pretend to be this person? When Cragen, played by Timothy Hutton, who's pretty much the closest thing to a bad guy this movie has, says, I know who you are, Georgia, and is about to launch into this villain speech, it ends up... It ends basically in a collective shrug from everybody. They're like, okay, she's a worker. She's actually been telling the truth this whole time. What, what's your point with this, Cragen? And I wish that more movies would take a look at their dramatic scenario and ask of the characters, really, are they going to care? Because anything that George is perceived at, at the spa or elsewhere... Those are images that she doesn't create for herself. They're fantasies that other people project on her. Like, <laughs> Kragen obviously has something of a self-defeating fantasy. Otherwise, he wouldn't think of her as some kind of government enforcer out to get him or whatever. But it's so straightforward. And, like, there's no good drama to be mined from everyone suddenly being upset with her. And in another moment earlier, when she she's talking with the really uptight um, maid who outs herself yeah, in just one of the most wonderfully direct lines of dialogue, yeah, I know, I'm a bitch. That's what people tell me. That maid, when she says that, it, it's again just a result of her quote-unquote, finding the truth about Georgia, but just accepting her for it, and that's it. Don't force a conflict. If this would be stupid for people to get mad about, <laughs> let it wash over like that. Yeah, that is true, because I was, I've been, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking back to a bunch of other, I guess you could say, Cinderella-ish rom-coms, where, yeah, the truth does come out, and there's that whole, you lied to me moment, and it's like, well, no, it's more your assumption of people. That's it's again, this film's all about people looking at themselves and realizing their own faults. You can't really take it out on Georgia because Georgia's just being her. And I, as we see, everyone else is now learning how to be like Georgia. And I think that about taps me out from what I could say about last holiday with one final exception in one of my favorite cathartic moments and why I wanted this to be a little more of a light podcast. One of my favorite moments in last holiday is when Georgia goes up to her manager, who is this hyper business obsessed kind of waspy white dude. And she just destroys his $400 phone of a guy who is reading Young Hip Rich, and Young Hip Rich is written by Cragen, the older white dude. So there was just a nice little catharsis there, seeing a worker go up to her manager, break his stuff, and him getting false comfort from a potentially over-the-hill white businessman who is maybe expending his power more than he should be. And I will leave it to you, dear listener, to see why I'm getting catharsis from that moment. I'm not quite sure who you're referring to. Maybe it was a character in Millions. Is that what you're talking about? Entirely possible. Possible, yes, yes, okay, okay. Capitalism is a thing in both movies. That is true. <laughs> so I guess that may be your subtle way of saying, hey, Andrew, let's talk about millions. You know what? We can go into that. I'm just trying to keep it light for you because I know <laughs> if you go down a certain path, a path of big business and hotels that may or may not be foreclosing with a prominent name on it, you might go into an unhappy <laughs> place. So let's just keep it light and joyful and talk about your Danny Boyle film. <laughs> I like that. So we'll take a quick break and then we will come back with millions. And we're back. So the next one that we're going to talk about is Danny Boyle's 2004 film, Millions. It's a story of two brothers who come across a bag of money, and one of them wants to do good with it, while the other 
thinks that the bag of money could be put to better use for personal gain. So, Andrew, why did you uh, select this one? Okay, going to set something up ahead of time. This is going to be kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of deadly serious. I will hear no bad talk of millions. None. This movie is magical, and this magic will be shared by all. Now that I've got my militant magical aspect out of the way, Millions, in more seriousness, is Danny Boyle's most unique, wonderful movie, and is the only time his eclectic style just works perfectly from start to finish. I know he's mega critically acclaimed. I know that he's won a lot of awards. But when I was talking about how Wayne Wang has had a more interesting career in terms of what he's done, I won't deny that Boyle is an amazing stylist. But his style in a lot of his movies kind of keeps things at a snarky distance. I mean, Train Spotting was one of the biggest examples of that, where you had that, you know, reject life or accept life or choose life opening with a bunch of druggy losers. Even with something like 28 Days Later, where I, I think it does work a little more when it starts getting into more traditional dramatic structures, his style is kind of too much. It's keeping things on overload. And then sometimes this style causes such a clear division in quality parts of his movies where you have something like Sunshine, where it's an extremely effective hard sci-fi movie for the first half. And then it becomes kind of a slasher in the last half for whatever reason. Instead of getting a blow by blow on what I see are Boyle's downsides for his style, Millions works perfectly start to finish because it the style in this case his frenetic editing his steeped in like classical kids movies in this case like night of the hunter there's a danger throughout millions and since it's so firmly rooted in the perspective of this deeply devout child everything works the scenes where the neighborhood is being built from the ground up out of the bare outlines of a neighborhood, the scene where a kid at school is describing the bank heist that ends up getting Damien that money that he thinks is from God, and it switches to this high-paced, almost heat-esque moment while Muse blares in the soundtrack. There are tons of jarring tonal shifts like that but it's from so perfectly this loving kid's perspective that it's so easy to get caught up and not really care about those tone shifts moment to moment because the kid since we're so with him emotionally and that's also why the last 20 minutes or so i have become a crying mess every single time so there's nothing cloying about millions there's nothing that's condescending to religion. And when we talk about, you know, the diversity aspect in front of and behind the camera, America has a very healthy religious movie system with stuff like Fireproof and God's Not Dead. And when I say healthy, I mean box office wise. I don't mean that they are good movies, but those are condescending to non-believers. And sometimes they actually do work and more often than not, they come off as insulting. Millions doesn't do that. It, it just presents Damien's faith so plainly and also hints at how it really is a coping mechanism for him losing his mother, that it's the rare movie that embraces religion and spirituality from start to finish, but it doesn't feel like it's making fun of it. And we really don't get many movies like that. And for it to be in a fantasy movie directed by train spotting toilet diving guy it's a miracle and i adore it it's more overtly christmas even christmas ish and man please don't say anything bad about millions <laughs> oh i got tons of bad the first time i watched millions the tonal shifts were jarring for me they've gotten better on repeat viewing because as you said it is a fantasy but it's one of those that I think goes from childlike wonderment to some really dark places and then back to childlike wonderment again. That sometimes can 
at least for an initial viewing, can kind of take you out of the movie for a bit. Coming back to it, though, I, I still appreciate this movie. It's not my favorite Danny Boyle film. I'd, I'd probably put it middle of the pack for me in terms of his filmography, but I find that he's a director that is constantly taking chances with his films. Like I don't feel that too many of his films follow the same trajectory. But one thing I will touch on is when you talked about The Devout Child and how it presents religion, one thing that caught me about millions, both times that I've, I've watched it now, is how in terms of the religious figures that appear to him, as you said, is, is a great coping mechanism. But I loved how he almost treats it like a sport. Whenever a religious character comes out, he, he gives you like their stats, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was such a inventive Way because even from a childlike perspective, he's like he he looks at these figures the way that we would look at baseball heroes or hockey players or football players, where you know you you know all their great points and great moments. And I like the good-hearted nature of I think it's Damien's the main child. Yes, I, I love that he has a perpetual innocence for I said the majority of the film until the very end where he's just like you know I've tried to do everything I can to help people and these people don't seem to want to be helped because. Money corrupts things and changes people. I, I like that for the majority of the film, he tries his best to just help those in need. He's not really about buying all the flashy things. He just wants to drop 10 grand into a donation box because it's the right thing to do. It's a good film. I don't have the same love for the film as you do, but it's one that I still appreciate. Well, on the saint aspect, a lot of people have, have noticed it that way. I think uh, Roper back when Roper was hosting at the movies with Roger Ebert, he had noted how Damien collects saints in his mind like baseball cards. And there was something else about the saints that has really grown on me with each viewing, and that comes from Boyle's edgier side, his more dangerous side, when he's directing. There's a through line that, while this is wonderful and magical and fantastical, it doesn't ignore the violence that these saints have endured. There's a great, like, blink and you'll miss it moment when the Ugandan martyrs are helping Damien rebuild his little house he constructed after they moved and where the millions literally fall onto him, where he recognizes them. And, I mean, I used to be really heavily Christian, not Catholic, but he just goes, oh, the Ugandan martyrs. And then when they go to shake Damien's hand, there's a blood stain that gets left and the martyr just casually says oh yeah we were beheaded that's awfully rough for a kids movie but that history of saints enduring that violence most of the time it's these pristine perfect presentations of the saint and here it's like no they they were labeled saints more often than not because something rough happened and they transcended it and i know something rough is maybe putting it mildly to martyrs that were beheaded but that's where we are with the kids movie and that weariness that really only an adult or an adult who's respecting what kids go through can bring to a movie like this is what softens a lot of what could be the fantastical elements in a different way than last holiday even if the philosophies are kind of similar because I love also the first saint that he sees, and I think it's Saint Agatha. She is sitting in Damien's hideout with him. She just lights up a joint when they're sitting together. Yeah, I thought that was a, a very amusing touch. Well, and that's the thing. It's innocent. There's nothing wrong with that moment. And this is kind of getting into my mom's hippy-dippy-ish ways. She doesn't smoke, but she is very much influenced a lot of my upbringing when she says you know th there's nothing wrong with marijuana it's one of god's gifts on earth and we should use it <laughs> i really like the way that boyle integrates that bit of philosophy into millions without really calling attention to it and that adult sensibility that weariness with religion and with spiritual aspects i like even that the saints kind of start exhibiting this after a while because Damien has this tendency to tell the saints how they died immediately after seeing them. And when he meets St. Peter, St. Peter cuts him off right when he was telling St. Peter how he died. And he goes, I know, I know, don't remind us. So there's just a lot of edgy moments that 
aren't perfect. They show that the there was violence. They show that there was imperfections and insecurities among the saints. Even one of the most cinematically celebrated St. Francis, when he's comforting Damien's doubt that pulls us down to a mortal level, you know. It's those insecurities that make the moments that we see as miracles that much grander. And I'm not a religious guy, but looking at that and then with the edge, it's hard for me not to feel kind of transcendent when I'm watching Millions. And it's funny because when you talked about adult sensibilities, I think that's a perfect way to talk about this film because Damien has that childlike ideal that if you give money to those in need, they will be helped. And I love that line where I think it's towards the end of the film where he's talking to the last spirit and he says, I was going to give the money to the poor, but it was very hard, right? He's kind of entered that adult world realizing that even though you have best intentions, sometimes it's so much more complicated to get to those in need and to just help those who are in need. And I love that millions at the end of the day when you take away like the money the saints it's really just about a child i'd say two brothers really trying to learn to move on after the loss of their mother and damien's trying to do it the best way he can by being a good person and realizing that the world just doesn't always appreciate being good and i think that's where the screenwriter who is no slouch in the movie department himself frank cottrell boyce who did stuff like 24-Hour Party People and Welcome to Saravejo, A Cock and Bull Story, Tristram Shandy. Not really like Kids Fair, where his screenwriting here is wonderfully subtle in that relationship because it centers around a repeated line of dialogue where one or the other of the brothers say, our mom's dead. And Anthony, who's the older brother, he's the one who says our mom's dead to try and get things. At least it seems that way initially. He wants to say our mom's dead to get candy, to get cookies, to sometimes get a little bit of extra money to get out of trouble. Damien, when Anthony convinces him to say that, this is where just the the kid acting in this is through the roof. Damien, when he's saying that, he doesn't feel good. It's pointing out something that he is a lot more aware of than Anthony seems to be that, yes, mom is gone. And this hurts to say. So I think that the big transition throughout Millions is how each instance of that brings Damien closer to understanding that Anthony is not okay, that Anthony's focusing on earning property and buying things and paying people to stay quiet about the money because he's not dealing with the fact that, yes, their mom is dead. He's put so much distance between that that he's not healing. That's why it seems initially like Damien is maybe the less well-off of the two. You know, he sees saints. Sometimes people think he's hallucinating. There's one great dramatic moment where Anthony tells him he's a loon, and that's one of the few times Damien gets aggressive. He doesn't like being thought of as crazy. He just wants to help people. But that transition, the, the way that something as heartbreaking as our mom is dead is employed both in a darkly comedic way and then as a evolutionary point for the two brothers, Damien becoming the saint that he is probably going to be, and Anthony finally starting to heal himself, is another adult sensibility through the screenplay in this case, as opposed to the sometimes threatening direction. I completely agree with your point there. And one thing I liked about how the maturity of the dialogue is presented is when they introduce the father's new love interest, I think it's Dorothy. Yes. Um, I really liked how that was handled. Because, I mean, you get the scene where Damien walks in on them and is kind of shocked to see Dorothy in his father's bed. But for the most the majority of the film, Damien is very open to her. Anthony immediately sees her as a threat. And again, playing off that whole dichotomy that you had alluded to earlier. But I liked how Dorothy is not shoehorned into the family. Like I, To me, her progression with them felt 
natural. It felt the way it would as a father or widower now starting to move on in life. Like I find often in films when you get the possible new significant other, there's immediately those boundaries. There's a scene of some type of war where the kids are plotting against and whatnot. And here, Anthony acknowledges that he doesn't like the way it's going, but he doesn't do much to stop it. He just kind of grumbles about it and moves on. And I like that Damien is still getting used to the idea, but he treats her with the utmost respect i guess the, the same respect that his mother would expect him to treat him with and that sets up that great scene at the end when he's talked to that last spirit and dorothy is raised you could tell that damien likes dorothy but doesn't know if he should feel guilty because of that and you get that great moment where the spirit's telling him well adult relationships are complicated and what have you but i thought that that was really well done in this film i think it's because it so quickly pivots back to the brothers relationship and what they think about it because when dorothy starts taking a more active role in their lives that's where we get the sense that anthony is talking about material possessions and such in a way to keep himself from moving on from their mother's death i really liked how anthony becomes almost extremely territorially passive aggressive asking for bedtime stories when damien you know as the younger of the two He'd be more likely to be asking for those bedtime readings, but Damien just kind of looks at Dorothy with wonder in a way and how she is helping their father finally move on. And again, it goes back to those adult sensibilities because early on when Damien is getting used to the new house and his brother rejects him from coming in and, and comforting him, when Damien goes to see his father, we get that very quick but really heartbreaking detail of how little ronald their dad has moved on because he's basically made a body of pillows so that he can snuggle with the pillows now that his wife is gone that's where boyle just crams a whole lot of storytelling and relationship building in those moments because ronald doesn't go back to comforting damien he doesn't hug damien or anything like that he just makes room and starts staring at the ceilings because as an adult, Boyle, even though he's framed this in this childlike miracle, understands that Ronald is lonely and has adult needs like sex that aren't so like jarringly integrated in with millions, even with all the other tone shifts. There's a really innocent and healthy integration of sexuality throughout Millions, even if it's funnily put, like the moment when Anthony and Damien are sitting at the computer on things that they could buy. Damien looks at the monitor, which has got this girl in a bikini, and the way Damien puts it is really funny, because he's like, she looks nice, because he hasn't really learned to talk that way yet. And, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and Anthony, he just goes, oh, I've seen better, close the door, because he's a little older. And just when they're talking over the lingerie models, that could be a scene that would be fraught with potentially negative undertones or uncomfortable undertones. But again, there's an innocence about it because it is kids trying to understand that sexual part of themselves, just as their dad is trying to reorient himself sexually. And Millions doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't say they we don't sit down for the talk or we don't sit down to conceal the talk it again goes back to how uh, frank cottrell boyce's screenplay is so mature in how it integrates all of these storylines one storyline that i want to talk about though briefly in terms of the integration is the storyline of the criminal or the unnamed man that's constantly chasing them. when you started off talking about this film you made reference to night of the hunter and I didn't even associate this film in that regards. But now my mind has been looking at it from that perspective, you know? <laughs> and yeah, no, because it's, it's interesting because it's like, oh, that's, it's a good point. Because if you really think about it, he does feel like that ominous figure that's always constantly on their trail. And I remember the first time I was watching it, part of the disjointedness I felt was how he was integrated because some of the stuff that happens and some of the conversations, like he's calling the house saying, give me my money, I'm going to be there. It felt somewhat out of place with some of the other stuff that was going on in this film. But now that I'm looking at it from the Night of the Hunter style perspective, I was just like, oh, maybe the man works better than i originally thought because even the second time around i was still a little irked by him in terms of how he was used but it didn't distract me from the stuff that i really enjoyed about the film 
Yeah, and I think that part of the Night of the Hunter influence is obviously in the visuals, like the way that the robber, when he is silhouetted over the hills, that's very much like when Robert Mitchum is silhouetted over the hills as he's chasing the kids in Night of the Hunter. And even thematically, there's a big parallel between the two because both of them are about kids lost in this sort of fantasy world. While Night of the Hunter is a little less religious on the kids' side, it's a lot more visually steeped in kind of a humble religion because of the old woman who ends up taking them in in the night of the hunter and having this literal standoff between good and evil millions isn't quite as overt about it and you know let's face it the the robber here isn't exactly an actor of robert mitchum's type but the night of the hunter is more about overt good overt evil let them clash whereas millions works a lot more as a kids movie made by adults with respect for kids and adults by integrating that bit of cinematic history and letting things be a little more fluid and childlike instead of night of the hunter which has these fanciful dressings but you know the danger is almost dripping off the screen in some moments. To get to your point where you're talking about a kid's movie made for adults and for kids, do you think that this is one, as time goes on, that more kids will be drawn to? Because I feel this is one that adults might take a chance on, but I don't know if young kids really would immediately dive in unless they were brought to them by their parents. I think it's going to be the latter case. I mean, we're going to need parents who are willing to show kids this. And I think it's a really healthy movie uh, to show as many kids as possible. Millions rejects the commercialization of Christmas. That's one of my favorite through lines because you end up with these satirical commercials about how the spirit of Christmas is basically a busty woman and a old white dude who is about to trade in his money for even more money. That's the kind of satirical jab to go back to what I was saying about how I wanted a more fun catharsis that works really well. And since Millions has such a respectful viewpoint for spirituality and for religion, you could show this to an atheist. I'm what I refer to as a reluctant agnostic myself, and you can be entranced by that innocence of a kid's view of faith, but it's still tempered by more of an adult and sometimes non-believing viewpoint. And adults should show kids this movie, period. I don't care if you're a believer or anything like that, but it's so wonderful and fanciful that its energy brings kids in, its visuals bring kids in, while the dialogue and some of those side moments, like Dad's relationship with Dorothy, keep it grounded from that adult perspective as well. In prepping for this show, I was looking again at a lot of the Christmas lists that people have, for like, you know, the best holiday films, best Christmas movies. And Millions is one that, for the bunch of lists that I came across, was not even on it. And it, hopefully in time, it's one that people would start considering, even as jarring as it is on initial view. When you watch it again, you realize it does come together well. And I like that the kids, for the most part, are realistic and believable. They have fantasies, but even the fantasies are still within the realm of understanding so that's why i was asking you how do we get kids to see this film and i think you're all right that people will have to present it to like you know when my kid's a little older i'm definitely going to show him this film i'll slip it into the holiday rotation and, and see what he thinks of it because there's a practicality when you mention the i guess the realisticness of the kids behind all of anthony's actions we figure out Obviously, that it is kind of a coping mechanism for him to be so capital-oriented, but he's not wrong. And that's what also makes Millions such a mature movie, is Damien's not wrong for his altruism in trying to help people. Anthony is also not wrong in pointing out this money is going to be worthless soon, and we need to do something with it if you even kind of want to help people. So other than the obviously villainous thief, no one's really wrong in Millions. Even the comedic moments, like the police officer who not so cautiously tells everyone at the beginning in a really funny scene, you're all going to be burgled maybe next week, definitely soon. 
give us a call when it happens. Oh, that was one of my favorite scenes of this film. And just how straight-faced he is about new housing developments frequently get robbed. So basically just be prepared. And, you know, you get the sense that even when you do get robbed, we're not going to do anything about it. <laughs> and I was like, That's, you're a police officer. You shouldn't really be telling people that. But that was a very amusing moment. Well, that's what's great about the role and the way it's written. He shouldn't be telling people that, but throughout the movie, he shows himself to be a really good police officer with no bedside manner whatsoever. He's able to piece things together quickly in sometimes funny ways when he is bluntly telling everyone that they'll be robbed and more funny ways like when he goes to visit the Mormons and makes note of all of the purchases that they've made. And then also at the very end... When he starts to suspect the family may be hiding a lot of money, he's right. And just his weird lack of bedside manner, at that point, he suspects the dad. The officer licks his lips really quickly, like almost in anticipation of this case that he is figuring out. And he's like, you mind a bit of toast? And before he runs up the stairs to find what he is correct about, instead, you know, a bit of divine intervention and the, the police officer ends up finding the actual thief instead of the family who just happened to luck into it. So it's just another mature but funny take on things. He's a good officer. He just has no bedside manner at all. Yeah, and similar to The Last Holiday, this is one of those films that, you know, I would say is obviously more serious than Last Holiday in tone and themes, but you still end up walking away feeling good. You still feel that sense of joy after watching this film, and I think that's crucial to any type of film that fits into that Christmas-ish mold. That's a good point for me to leave off on, because this movie, I adore it. I've adored it since it first came out. This was, much like with The Midnight Swim last episode, this was my fourth time watching Millions, and it's very personal for me, Millions is, when it was in theaters, there was an odd staggered release schedule for Millions throughout the United States, because it's a Christmas-ish movie, but it was released in very few theaters across the globe. And in America, it was just seemed to be thrown out randomly. But that worked out to my advantage, because Millions happened to be playing on Mother's Day, in, I think, 2004 when it came out, or 2005, something like that. My mom at the time and I were both living in Illinois. I had been living by myself for a few years at that point in my first apartment. And my mom, like I've alluded to, is a wonderful hippie Christian kind of person. She's very devout. She's very loving and very giving. And for Mother's Day, I knew this would be a great movie for the two of us to watch together. I'm closest to my mom and vice versa. You know, we talk a lot. I take a lot more after her side of the family. And at the very end, when Damien's mother comes back and it is impossible for me not to start crying and I had already seen it. So I was crying and my mom was crying and we were just kind of hugging each other. And then she looked at me as I was crying most heavily and she just says, you wuss. While she has all these tears <laughs> in her eyes. So I love it. I have a huge personal connection to it. I hope more adults and parents take your lead on this and introduce the kids to it. This is a really special movie. I hope also more people, I guess, who maybe are listening and wrote it off or gave it an initial watch and found it kind of annoying or anything like that. Hope you take what we've said into account, both about Last Holiday and Millions and approach it from a different perspective. Give it a fresh watch. Maybe pull in some people that you wouldn't normally watch these kind of movies with. Have a talk about it. See what happens. I think that's a perfect note to end off on. Andrew, uh, where can the listeners reach you? Well, obviously, you can leave a comment below here at the Modern Superior website. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm terrible at remembering the names of that stuff. So uh, for the Changing Reels Twitter, I will include a link to that. But personally, you can reach me at can't stop drew and courtney you're better at that stuff than i am so where 
can people reach you? And what is our email again? Oh, of course, you know, our email is changing.reels.ac at Gmail. And on Twitter, you can reach us at Twitter at changingreelsac. And you can also get in contact with me personally at smallmind on Twitter. Perfect. I'm glad that one of us is better at this. And maybe I will write it down for next time I am tasked with discussing it. But maybe not. I've got to keep that little bit of realistically tempered, childish wonderment, and maybe that wonderment just prevents me from knowing email addresses. <laughs> and, and plus, you want to keep them in suspense. You want to keep them coming back for more. Exactly! So I think that'll do me for the day. This has been a wonderful chat. I appreciate the lightness. I really needed it. And this is Andrew Hathaway for Changing Reels. And this is Courtney Small. And I guess by the time this one goes up, our next episode will be after Christmas. So to those who are celebrating Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever holiday or festivities, your festivus, whatever you're celebrating, the best to you and your family. Same from me. Thank you for listening, folks. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 